0: Good morning. Welcome to Stonebridge. Those of you who are viewing this online, welcome. Glad to have all of you here with us today. Let's have a word of prayer that God would prepare our hearts for his word. Father, we ask that you would guide us into all truth, speak to our hearts and minds, uh, that we might understand the word, that we might apply it to our lives and that we might be careful to obey and honor you in all we do. Bless our time together, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder if any wedding has ever gone off without a hitch. In fact, after the service, if your wedding went off without a bridesmaid getting into dropping her bouquet or a flower girl running across the platform or the the groom nearly fainting, uh, let me know because I don't know if I've ever seen one. Uh, For Karen and I, we had uh, my three brothers on one side, uh, her two sisters and sister-in-law on the other, very nice. Uh, One of my brothers was unable to attend the rehearsal. He had to work that evening, so Karen had a brother-in-law who graciously stood in for him. Then the next day, Saturday, day of the wedding, 15 minutes before the ceremony was about to begin, my brother had not yet arrived. We rented the tuxedos in my town, so we had uh, his tuxedo. And I said to that brother-in-law, soon to be my brother-in-law, would you take this tuxedo and go ahead and stand in like you did last night at the rehearsal? And he graciously agreed. No sooner did Bruce round the corner than my brother walked in. He's joking and jiving and saying all kinds of stuff. And I said, man, listen, listen to me. You're not going to be in the wedding. I just sent Bruce off to put on your tux. I fired my older brother from our wedding 15 minutes before it started. Guess what? Karen never even noticed. She was unaware till after the ceremony that somebody else was up there. Well, if you'll join me in John chapter 2, the gospel according to John chapter 2, we're going to read about a typical wedding that ran into trouble. Jesus and his mother and some of his disciples attended this wedding. And I want to follow along, want you to follow along as I read John 2 beginning at verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there and Jesus also was invited and his disciples to the wedding. And when the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what do I have to do with you? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 to 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. And they took it to him. And when the head waiter tasted the water which had become wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, every man serves the good wine first. And when men have drunk freely, then that which is poor. You have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of his signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Mary, Jesus' mother, found out the problem. As far as we know, the bride and her mother were unaware, maybe not aware at all. And so Mary went to Jesus and we wonder what was she expecting Jesus to do? In fact, what did she know about Jesus? She had been visited by an angel, Uh, She was pregnant without the benefit of a man. Uh, A miracle had occurred to her, but Jesus is now about 30 years old. He is just now launching his public ministry. She has never seen him do the miraculous. This is his very first miracle. And Jesus responds to her in a way that may sound harsh, but I don't think it is. It sounds a little rougher in English than in Greek. Woman, kind of an unusual way to address his mother. What do I have to do with you? My hour has not yet come. Now, if you read through the Gospel of John, you would see he speaks of his hour several times, and he's speaking of the crucifixion. At this point, that's about three years down the road. My hour has not yet come. But his mother, undeterred, says to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. That's a great expression. Whatever he says to you, Do it. That'd be a great life verse. In fact, it'd make a great motto for Stonebridge. Whatever Jesus says to you, do it. Whatever the word of God says, do that. I like it a lot better than Nike's slogan, don't you? (laughs) Whatever Jesus says, do it. The author of this gospel tells us that there were stone water pots there holding 20 to 30 gallons. So I'm not sure just how high they were, maybe close to waist height. There are six of them. They are stone water pots, literally carved out of stone. These were not fired clay pots. And they served a specific purpose. This is not drinking water. This is water for ritual purification. Um, Probably a strange expression to most of us. Uh, Evangelicals wash our hands and feet, mostly for sanitary and uh, hygiene reasons. We don't have religious reasons why we wash, but the Jews did. And in fact, they still do. When Karen and I were in Israel in 2017, every restroom we entered had a a metal cup with two handles chained to the sink. And that was used by the Jews for ritual washing. And every mosque, not only in Israel, I'm assuming around the world, it was true in Istanbul anyway, Outside the mosque, there's an area along the wall where there are faucets uh, two, two and a half feet off of the ground and kind of a, a bench opposite them where the men would sit and wash their feet before they entered the mosque for prayer, ritual cleansing before the time of prayer. No doubt, all those wedding guests, and we don't know how many there were, But that's why they needed six of these pots. They had all washed themselves according to their religious convictions when they arrived at the wedding. After traveling, their feet especially would get dirty and they would cleanse themselves and prepare themselves for that wedding. So we have six pots, 20 or 30 gallon, 120 to 180 gallons, gallons of water. Now, if my calculations are correct, that's 600 to 900 modern day bottles of wine. So they went from no wine, which was a a social disaster and potential embarrassment, to way more wine than they ought to be drinking. Jesus provided for them abundantly. When was the last time that you thought about Jesus' abundant provision for you? How he provides generously and abundantly and more than we can even imagine. Verse 11 says, this beginning of his signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. This is a demonstration of his glory by divine power, showing that he is the son of God. And Jesus' first miracle, this miracle at the wedding in Cana, is uh, fascinating. And you're aware of it. You've read about it. You've thought about it. You've probably heard sermons about it. But, and I mean this very respectfully. I'm just trying to get us thinking about it, okay? No disrespect. It doesn't seem to be a miracle of great moment. I mean... Saving the family from embarrassment, certainly nice. The very generous thing for Jesus to do. Jesus fed 5,000 people with a little boy's sack lunch. That's pretty significant. Jesus healed a blind man he'd never seen before. You talk about life-changing life changing Jesus walked on water. For many people, that is the epitome of a miracle. Ah, it's not the highest miracle on the miracle food chain. That's raising somebody from the dead. And Jesus did that more than once. Not trying to diminish this miracle in Cana, but it's interesting that his very first one was not really as powerful and impactful seemingly as many of his other miracles and nevertheless it manifested his glory. It showed that he is the son of God as much as any other miracle did. Now, Someone has said that we sometimes think of Jesus as so busy running the universe that there are some things that are too small to take to him. And I'd like to challenge that thinking. Is Jesus like the 911 emergency number? You would never dial 911 if you had a stopped sink. You wouldn't dial 911 if your toddler dumped the flower pot all over the kitchen floor, right? Those are just too small. In fact, I guess you'd probably get in trouble if you dialed 911. And so we may slip into this thinking that that's not too significant for Jesus. That's that's not really important. I'm not really going to pray about that. When Jesus wants us to pray about everything, when he wants us to realize he's concerned with every aspect of our life. Back to Israel, if you will, that 2017 trip, which was fantastic. Karen and I had such a great time and there's so much to see there. But there is in the middle of the old city. Now you got the old city, which is not that big. And then it is surrounded by modern day Jerusalem. In the middle of the old city is a tower. 13 stories tall, 178 steps. There's no elevator in that thing. We trudged up those steps, and what a view. You could see the entire old city. You could see most of the new city of Jerusalem. Just a fantastic view, and Karen had to get some pictures, and she's getting ready to take a picture and dropped her cell phone. 13 stories, and Everything in Jerusalem is made out of stone. She was so upset. She was shaking and she was crying. She had to sit down. And we sat down and I was holding her hand and she said, we need to pray. I've got a confession to make. My first thought was, pray about what? That cell phone's in a thousand pieces. But we prayed. Then we zipped down those 178 stairs, not knowing if we'd even find the phone. What if it landed on our rooftop? How would we get up there? But we walked around a little bit, and here's kind of an iron gate, and we looked in, and there was the phone. It was not in a thousand pieces. In fact, it still worked. Was that a miracle? Or was that (laughs) Otterbox? I don't know. And you know what? I'm not sure it matters. We were so thrilled. We were telling strangers on the street. Guy walked up to us offering to uh, guide us around for the day. And we shared about this episode. And we shared Jesus Christ with him. And he, he didn't come to faith right then. But the seed was planted, do you believe that God is concerned with every single circumstance of your life? None of them are too small. Now, I am not saying that Jesus is some kind of a genie that we can get out of a bottle. I am not saying that he will make everything nice and new We seek the will of God, but by taking anything and everything to him in prayer by faith, we are telling him that we trust him. We are telling him that we realize he loves us so much that there is nothing that is too small. That he cares for us. That he will minister to us even if it's only to save us from a bit of embarrassment. That's our Savior. John 2.11 This beginning of his signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Not too many verses before this John writes these words. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John writes to reveal the glory of Jesus. That we might understand that he is the son of God that we might trust him and that we might entrust ourselves to him. And this miracle and every other miracle that Jesus performed demonstrate his glory, his divine power, his divine identity. They call us to trust him. The writers of the New Testament use different words for miracles, One, uh, and this may be the most common one, dunamis, frequently translated miracle, focuses on divine power. From this Greek word dunamis, we get our English word dynamite. This is the power of God at work. It's a miracle. The second word teres means wonder. And this uh, draws our attention to the awe that those who witness these things experience. And frankly, the awe that you and I ought to experience when we read about the miracles of Jesus and we meditate on them and realize how they demonstrate his glory. Wow! That's a miracle. And the last of these is Simeon, John's favorite. He prefers the word signs. Now, some of you may have a version in which this is sometimes translated miracle, but he actually doesn't use the word dunamis. He uses the word Simeon, signs. And this focuses on the meaning and the message like a sign that we experience in life points to something or communicates something to us and it has meaning to us. So do the miracles, the signs of Jesus. We're going to consider what they point to this morning. Now, this is no arbitrary vocabulary choice for John. He does this very deliberately. And in fact, and you're probably picking this up from Michael's messages on Proverbs. Uh, Those are very pointed and distinct and, and they are creative like the Psalms. The writers were inspired by the Spirit of God, yes, but they used their own personalities and their own creativity. And you see that uh, the Scripture communicates in a variety of different ways. And John gives his purpose, interestingly, near the end of the book. John 20, verse 30. He writes many other signs therefore Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. I chose under the inspiration of the Spirit of God not to include those. But these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. John is saying, I selected these. John records fewer miracles than any of the other gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke have many more than John does. In fact, John has seven miracles before the resurrection. There is one miracle after that, but he is talking about these seven before and the number is significant, right? The number seven is very significant in the Bible, often referring to uh, completeness. So we might say that these seven miracles of John provide us with a complete uh, message and picture of Jesus. The first, the water into wine, demonstrates Jesus' power over nature. Uh, His power to create Next, in chapter 4, we would come to the healing of the nobleman's son. And this is Jesus' power over space. Remember, he didn't even go to the sickbed of the child. He healed him at a distance. Chapter 5, there is the healing of a lame man. 38 years he was lame. Jesus' power over time. 38 years And Jesus not only healed whatever the affliction was that turned him into a crippled man, but also 38 years of atrophy. You know, I sit in a chair a little wrong for 30 minutes and I have a hard time getting up. Didn't always, but I do now. 38 years and Jesus said to that man, Arise, take up your pallet, and walk. Guess what the man did? He got up. He picked up his pallet and he walked. What a miracle. And it points to Jesus' power over time. Uh, He fed 5,000 people. That's the only miracle that occurs in all of the gospels apart from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Power over need. Also in chapter 6, walking on the water. Sometimes we use that expression as the epitome of miracles. Well, he thinks he can walk on water. Jesus actually walked on water. Then healing of a blind man. His uh, power, his divine power over darkness and over misfortune. And then finally, what really is the pinnacle of miracles, raising someone from the dead. He raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. Jesus' power over death, all of these are possessed only by God. Anybody wants to argue that, well, uh, Jesus was just a man or Jesus never claimed to be God, he did, but also his miracles declare his divinity, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He manifests all of the power of God. Peter Preaching to a crowd on the day of Pentecost. After Jesus ascended into heaven, called Jesus, a man attested to you by God, by miracles, wonders, and signs. There's the three common words for miracles. Miracles, the power of God. Jesus possessed it. He exercised it. Wonders. The awe inspiring nature of those miracles and signs. Each miracle has a meaning and a message. It is significant. It communicates to us primarily Jesus' divine nature, his glory. Jesus turned water into wine. That's not natural what makes it a miracle, right? There is a natural process for producing wine. I'll share it with you. It's quite popular. You can begin to produce your own wine at home. All you need to do is plant and grow the vines. And from them will grow the grapes. And when they're ripe, you harvest the grapes. And you crush the juice out of them. And you uh, ferment it and you put it into bottles and you wait till it's ready and then you serve it. It's not as easy as I've explained. But Jesus bypassed all of that. And some of you are probably thinking this, but others of you might not have noticed this. He didn't only speed up time because wine is not made out of water. And they didn't bring him six large bottles of grape juice. He transformed water into wine. The power of God to transform. Who can turn a sinner into a saint? Who can accomplish such a miraculous and impactful transformation? Only God. There is no process for church membership that will make you a saint. There there are no steps that you can take that you will then uh, become free from the burden of sin and now eligible for heaven. Accompanying each of those seven signs in John's gospel, there is a discourse. There is a teaching by Jesus that expands on that miracle, drives home the point and significance of that miracle. The discourse accompanying this miracle is in John chapter 3. And it's not the teaching of Jesus on a mountainside, it's uh, an interview, a conversation between Jesus and a learned Jewish Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus. Probably quite a bit older than Jesus, maybe in his 60s. He'd gone to the right schools. He was revered by his peers. He was looked up to by the people who sat under his teaching. They thought of him like Michael Easley. That's how popular he was. And he really did understand the scriptures and could communicate them to the people. And here he is sitting at the feet of a carpenter early in Jesus' ministry, and Jesus blew his mind when he said, you must be born again. He couldn't believe what he was hearing. He actually said, you mean, how can a man enter his mother's womb? I mean, it's gross to even try to contemplate. What are you talking about, Jesus? And Jesus was talking about a spiritual transformation that can only be well epitomized by calling it a new birth, a regeneration, a brand new fresh start, sins are washed away, filled with the Spirit of God, born again by the power of God. That's what Jesus offers to each and every one of us, spiritual transformation. This miracle also points to the fact that Jesus brings us joy. Now this family was about to lose their joy through embarrassment, had they run out of wine. Our modern day weddings consist of the ceremony and then the reception and The whole thing, what, four, five, six hours? Jewish weddings and receptions went on for several days. And the host family was expected to provide food and wine for all the guests for that time. And Jesus spared this family that and kept the joy going. In scripture, wine is often used as a symbol, an image of joy. Psalm 104.15 says, Wine makes a man's heart glad, and weddings are joyous occasions. The author H.G. Wells said that at the end of his life, his soul was no longer moved by the sight of the stars in the sky. But listen to this quote. The truth is, I cannot express to you all the wonder and joy that I have in my heart through Jesus Christ. Christians ought to be the most joyous people. Sometimes we're not. Now, I know that if a person is a believer in going through a tragedy or a crisis, joy may not be the first response and and joy might not be evident for a time. But when you consider our lives, when you consider our normal disposition, it ought to be one of joy and gladness, rejoicing in our Savior. What's the fruit of the spirit? Love, joy, peace, etc. The spirit produces joy. We've been forgiven. All of our sins, we've been accepted into the family of God. We have started a whole new life at the moment we trusted in Christ. We have the anticipation of heaven to come. We can go on and on and on expressing all of the joys. And we focus on God and that focus brings us joy and gladness. Psalm 100 says, Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful singing as we've done today. Go then, eat your bread in happiness and drink your wine with a cheerful heart for God has already approved your works. Ecclesiastes 9. And listen to this passage from Jeremiah. The voice of joy and the voice of gladness the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the voice of those who say, give thanks to the Lord of hosts for the Lord is good for his loving kindness is everlasting. When we've been transformed by the power of God, when we become a new creature in Christ, Our hearts ought to overflow with joy, uncontainable joy. When Jesus, uh, John says to us in verse 11, this is his commentary on this miracle that his disciples believed in him. Now, you can study this out. I'm not convinced that that they've become believers here. I believe that occurs in chapter 1. And by the way, this is not all of the 12. They've not all been called to him yet. I'm not sure if this is 5 or 6. But they're already believers. But when they see this first miracle of his, their faith is deepened. It's enriched. It grows as faith is supposed to do. They believed in him more, and you'll see this more and more in the Gospel of John as you look through it. And so as we grow as Christians, as we study the word, as we worship him, as we profit from the community of our local church, we are to grow and our faith is to grow as we trust him more and more and more. John chapter 3, when he talks to Nicodemus, he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. That's the promise of Jesus. He repeats it again and again in the scriptures. Those who trust in Jesus Christ because we cannot save ourselves. Those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and our Savior because no church can save us. No dogma can save us. No amount of good works can save us. Only Jesus can save us. And whether you're here this morning or whether you're listening to this Uh, On television, have you trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior? Have you come to realize that he's no normal man? He's not just a Bible teacher. He is the Son of God. He died on the cross for your sins. He will cleanse you of all unrighteousness and give you the gift of eternal life. You need to be born again. That is your biggest problem. Your biggest problem is not financial. Your biggest problem is not relational. Your biggest problem is not your health, even if you're on your deathbed. Your biggest problem is that your sin separates you from a living, holy God. And Jesus wants to unite you. And if you will trust in him, that's exactly what will happen. You won't perish. You'll have eternal life. That's a guarantee. That's a promise. And all of Jesus' signs point to his power to do this. Now, I know that many of you are already Christians. You came to faith perhaps years ago, perhaps recently. Fantastic. We need to keep growing. We need to learn to trust him more and more and more, I was 16 when I came to faith in Jesus Christ. I thought I was okay. I attended church sometimes. I even listened to the sermon sometimes. But when somebody sat me down and told me about sin and asked me if I was a sinner, what was I going to tell him? <laughs> you might not even know me, but you're looking at me... As- Yeah, you were a sinner. Yes, I was. I had to acknowledge it. And he asked me if I understood that Jesus died for me, and I said yes. And he said, do you believe that he can forgive your sin? And I said yes. He said, do you believe that Jesus can give you eternal life? And I said yes. And I was born again. So wherever you're at, I urge you, Trust in Jesus Christ. Believe in him. Receive his gift of eternal life. Walk with him. Grow in him. Learn to trust him and love him more and more and more. Only Jesus could turn water into wine. You can't do that. No vintner can do that. No scientist can do that. Jesus shows us his glory by transforming us and giving us everlasting joy. That's what Jesus does for you and for me if we trust him. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would minister to each one of our hearts. Meet us where we are wherever that is. Some may be faithful followers of yours for many years. Some may be brand new to the faith, still learning much. Some may be skeptical. Others may be antagonistic to you. Meet us where we are and bring us to yourself, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.